This message is presented by Pastor Chuck Wilson. Okay, Chuck Wilson, New Hope Community Church, Back to the Future, Daniel 11, 2 through 20, Back to the Future. Uh, if you remember the movie Back to the Future, one of my favorites, very clever movie where he travels back in time, Michael J. Fox, back in time, which causes ripple effects for the future. Uh, very, very clever idea. Um, but it was entertaining. But but we're going to see today a real Back to the Future situation. We're going to see that God is sovereign over the past, present, and future. And we're going to see some shocking visions and prophecies that Daniel has that prove that God is in control of history before it even happens. And it's vital to keep this in mind, that God is in control of his history even before it happens. It's important to keep this in mind as our country and as the world hurdles forward into the shocking chaos that we've been seeing happen in the last few months alone. Amazing, scary time, but we know God is in control. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that each person listening to this would be encouraged in spite of what how our lives are being changed, in spite of how our churches are changing, in spite of how the country is, is changing, seemingly falling apart. Lord, that we know that your plan, your plan is not falling apart. Pray for your mercy and grace to speak through your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Let's pick it up here. Now, this is a vision. The vision starts in the near future where Daniel is right now, and it leads up to the first coming. We're going to see that this vision starts in Daniel's time, leads up to the first coming, and then the vision is going to jump to the end times, where it's going to jump to the end times and prepare for the second coming. And we're going to hit both of these, one now and the next one and a couple from here. It's the conflict of the nations from Daniel to the end times, the conflict of the nations and how it involves Israel. It's that Israel is always the key piece of the puzzle, key piece of the puzzle. And this is how God's showing Daniel how Israel is going to be involved in this conflict of the nations. We're going to see history in amazing detail, the most minute prophetic fulfillment in the entire scripture, over a hundred prophecies that are already fulfilled in verses 1 through 35, as we'll see. It drives the critics crazy. There's no way this was before all these events. Daniel, somebody, a second Daniel must have written this afterward. No way, except there's irrefutable evidence that Daniel did write this. Uh, We just already saw how Josephus wrote about Alexander the Great and confirmed all these things uh, that were prophesied. Amazing. This is a history cheat sheet that we're going to see from 539 BC, and we're going to we're going to see uh, this amazing fulfillment. First graphic that you're going to see on my right, which I'm going to be looking over here, is once again we saw Daniel chapter two, and we saw the statue, and the gold head is gone, Babylon's gone, but now we're at the time of the silver, Medes and Persians. Remember the arms, Medes and Persians, and then the graph. Uh, then below that was the brass, which were the Greeks. Those are the two kingdoms that we're going to focus on today. The second and third, the silver and bronze, which ends up being the uh, the bear and the leopards. And then ends up being the ram and the goats. And then here in Daniel 11, we're going to see the four kings and then the mighty king. Okay, So you can see that graphic. Then um, also there's a more detailed graphic that I'm going to put up 
Now, Sarah, <laughs> she's gonna be adding all these in. The, a more detailed graphic that's gonna show the history, that, and we may even attach that, but you can kind of follow along. If you want more these, I can send them to you. Uh, email nhcc at comcast.net so you can look at them and study them further. There's gonna be a lot of history thrown at you, but just the, the whole focus on this, focus on this is how it's being fulfilled, how Daniel was given the vision of these being fulfilled, okay? A crazy stuff. Look, we'll start with verse two. Now, then I tell you the truth, three more kings, here's Daniel talking. He's just had the angels fighting to get him the vision. Remember we talked about that last, but now he says, verse two, now then I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the king of Greece. So we know this has been, this one is fulfilled through the Emperor Cyrus and King Darius. Darius ruled under the Emperor, uh, Cyrus and Darius together. And then there says here, the, the angel, the vision says there's three more kings and then a fourth big shot. We know from history who those kings are. We know the next three were Cam, Cam, uh, Cambyses, Pseudosmyrdas, Darius the first, who really was not, uh, in the royal line. He was, a, he com committed identity theft that didn't start now he committed identity theft he was an imposter who looked like the king's son's uh, son and he stole the throne and he you know he's a fake you know and then the fourth one is Xerxes the first we know of Xerxes the first from the book of Esther all right book of Esther she was Miss Persia married uh, uh, Xerxes and this was the high tide of the Medes and Persians the high tide but it was also the start of their downfall with Xerxes in 480 BC he attacked Greece Herodotus the historian said he had over a million soldiers with him incredible he overran Greece almost the entire thing he burned Athens then then but then he had a setback his naval squadron loses a key battle and then he was forced to retreat he left a hundred thousand soldiers in Greece to fend for themselves they fought one more battle later on and were wiped out completely wiped out killed uh, unbelievable. So then verses 3 and 4 we see, Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Who's this powerful king? We already know. It's it's Alexander the Not-So-Great. Uh, he considered himself great, but, but in God's eyes, the Not-So-Great. He attacks Persia. He gets revenge on the Persians. He conquers the whole world in five years. He parties himself to death in 330 BC, but his sons don't take over for him. Look at the prophecy. They were murdered. His sons are murdered. And the four generals, his four generals, the four winds, prophecy, unbelievable, carve up his, his empire like a Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, there's two key ones that we're going to look at. There's four, but there's two key ones that we're going to focus on because they are the ones now that are in prophecy that are dealing with Israel, the nation of Israel. Uh, Seleucus, which started the Seleucid dynasty, he later called Syria. And this is in the north, the Seleucus dynasty, Seleucid dynasty in the north. And then the Ptolemy, Ptolemy is in Egypt, in Palestine, that's in the south. So remember, P for south, Ptolemy, south, and Seleucus, north. 
<clears throat> Syria north, Egypt south, okay? So verses 5 through 20, as we go through this, we're going to see there's this massive conflict between the north and the south, all right? This is, these two generals and their dynasties will continue for a long, long time. And Israel is caught in the middle. They're, they're, they both want Palestine, Israel, but they also keep crossing over to fight their battles. So, so Israel is caught in a very, very bad place here. Verse 5, let's, let's keep going here. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. So General Ptolemy declares himself king of Egypt, in 304 B.C., Ptolemy I, his dynasty lasts until 30 B.C., right up to the time of Christ almost. General Seleucus, uh, the, other, the other one, uh, Seleucus, which is the northern Syria, right? He wants Babylon. So he asked Ptolemy I to help him fight the third general. We're not going to get enough on the third and fourth general. We'll talk about them. But he asked him to help him fight him. And as a result, Seleucus becomes very powerful. He becomes the king of the north. Seleucus I rules Syria 305 B.C. to 64 B.C. Once again, right up to the time of Christ, we're going to see why they both ended here. You can guess who ended them. Um, so verse 6, verse 6, after some years they will become allies. Uh, the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north and make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Um, okay, so in the south, in the south, Ptolemy I dies, Ptolemy II becomes king in 285 B.C. But in the north, meanwhile in the north, Seleucus I is assassinated in 281 B.C. His son Antiochus I uh, becomes the king, but he dies in 262, and then Antiochus II becomes the king. All right, now follow this. Now, remember what he just was said about the daughter and all this? What happens is Antiochus II and Ptolemy II are bitter enemies. So in 250, according to this prophecy, it's fulfilled. In 250 BC, Ptolemy II gives his daughter Bernice to Antiochus II to marry. All right? How would you like that, girls? Your dad hates somebody, hates them so much that he pressures you to marry them so that you can spy on them and help get money from them. All right? This is what he's doing. Oh, and by the way, he's already married. The guy your dad wants you to marry is already married. He dumps Queen Laodice. Laodice. Uh, this is where you get the name Laodicea, the queen, uh, the, 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 Revelation 3.14, the church in Laodicea, Laodice, uh, he, he dumps that queen and, and marries this, you know, the new girl here. You think history is boring? Obviously you I mean, history in the Bible is boring. You've obviously never studied either because it's not boring, alright? Uh, talk about Game of Thrones, which I hope you don't watch, but Game of Thrones is not, not, nothing new. This has been going on for many, many years. So, Ptolemy II dies. And so when he dies, Antiochus II says, well, there's no point in being married to his daughter anymore, so I'm going to divorce Bernice. So he's, he's in the process of di divorcing Bernice, but Laodice, remember the one who was dumped, uh, she's waiting to remarry him. He says, I'm going to remarry you, but she's waiting. She gets impatient, so she kills Bernice and her, his, her son, and then Antiochus II remarries Laodice. 
who then promptly poisons him and kills him. How dumb can you get, right? Uh, and by the way, the top TV show at this time, archaeologists have just discovered it was Desperate Palace Wives. Desperate Palace Wives. Anywho, uh, Laodice becomes the king and her son, Seleucus II, becomes the king. But... Uh -huh, that doesn't sit well. Verse 7, one from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. So we see Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, doesn't like what happened. So he attacks Seleucus II and he wins and he kills Laodice. He gets revenge for Bernice. Uh, verse 8, <clears throat> He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Verse 8, Ptolemy III now has, has won. He makes a one-sided treaty with his wimpy Seleucus II. He goes back to Egypt with the spoils of war. He took, he took 2,500 idols, silver and gold idols from him for his new trophy case. He's setting it up. He, why would you take those idols when they didn't help that guy? I don't know. They're all brain dead, these guys, right? Spiritually brain dead. Verse 9. <clears throat> Verse 9. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. So Seleucus III tries to throw off the yoke. He attacks Egypt. <clears throat> he attacks Egypt but loses. The record of this battle is not found yet. So some people say, oh, see, this isn't all true. <laughs> Hundreds of these are true. They can't find one. Guess what? They're going to find it, right? Uh, it's it's going to be found. So verse 10, verse 10, for his sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. So Seleucus III... <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. Seleucus III becomes king in 227. He dies fast, but his brother Antiochus III takes over and he swoops down from the north, takes Palestine from Egypt, and he is now known as Antiochus the Great. This sets the stage for Israel and Palestine's role in this great tug of war. Now it's been taken away. There's a great tug of war. If you read any of the prophecy updates that uh, I've sent out or you get them online, prophecy updates in world news, you see that Israel is always in the middle. They're always in this tug of war. They're always in this middle of world conflict. There's no accident. That's God's plan that Israel is the belly button of the world. Even this tiny little country, look at the map, you can hardly see it, but it's the belly button of the world. Everything revolves around Israel. Prophetically, and in world events, Ezekiel 5, 5 says this, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, this is Jerusalem, which I've set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. God has put Jerusalem in the center of the world. Everything revolves around, that's God's prophetic time clock. We see this here. Israel's been in the middle of uproar for a long, long time. Amazing prophecies here in Daniel 11. Most minute detail in the entire Bible. Most have been fulfilled and soon we're going to jump to the end. Next time when we hit the next section, we're going to jump to the end times. We just saw two world powers are fighting over Israel. They're caught in the middle. And let's look at the tug of war. We just saw how the north has taken Israel, Palestine from the south. And let's look at verse 11. What does Ptolemy want? Verse 11, then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. Ptolemy IV wants Palestine back. He attacks Antiochus III. Antiochus loses and barely escapes with his life 
Verse 12, when the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. Potome the fourth wins, but he's proud and he's lazy. He slaughters the army, but he doesn't follow up. Why? Why doesn't he follow it up? Well, we know from history, we know from the Maccabees 3 history that he's been uh, paralyzed by pride and he, and he finally dies of mysterious illness. Um, he's proud. He doesn't follow it up. And then I'm going to read to you what the Maccabees 3 says about it. Uh, the reason why he didn't follow up this victory according to the prophecy that he wouldn't. After the battle, Ptolemy visited Jerusalem and purposed to enter the sanctuary in spite of all the prayers and dissuasion that when he was about to carry out his design, he's going to go into the temple, Simon the high priest knelt before the temple and prayed to God to smite the king with paralysis. His prayer was heard. The Jews, uh, uh, let's see, the king was carried away helpless, returned to Egypt, vowing vengeance on the Jews, uh, he did all kinds of bad, bad things, but God had struck him down and even protected the Jews that were going to be persecuted in Egypt miraculously. There's lots more about that here, but I'm not going to go into all the details. But, but we see that even that part is fulfilled. He finally dies a mysterious death. We know why now, because he tried to enter the temple. Big, big, big no-no. All right, so verse 13, verse 13 now, for the king of the north will muster another army. So the, the, Syrian Seleucid's not happy, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. Antiochus III has licked his wounds. He conquers countries to the north and the east. He waits until Ptolemy IV dies, and then Ptolemy V, the child king, takes over. He's only five years old, and in 203 BC, uh, Antiochus attacks him and retakes, because he's a weak king, he's only five, what could he do? He retakes Palestine. <clears throat> verse 14, this is where it gets dicey. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. The Jews are going to join Antiochus because, remember, Potome had persecuted them and done all kinds of bad things to them. <clears throat> so they decide we're going to help fight against the Egyptians. They think they're gaining more freedom by doing this, but in the end, they're going to be worse off, as we're going to see not too long from now. In fact, Josephus, <clears throat> Josephus records what happens to them after this. Uh, he, he, well, I'll read some of it here. It says, During the reign of Antiochus the Great, who ruled over Asia, the Jews uh, were sorely harassed going on with this war with Ptolemy. But they equally suffered when, no matter who won. It said they, no matter who won, they equally suffered, which I'll talk about that in a little bit later on. But the Jews, of their own accord, went over to Antiochus and received him into the city, Jerusalem, and gave plentiful provisions to his army and to his elephants. <laughs> He, he, they fed the elephants, you know. Uh, you'll see why in a little bit. They said, here's some nice hay, elephants. Remember me. Don't squash me later on, right? That's what they're doing. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Very wild stuff. Think Lord of the Rings, elephants, right? Verse 15. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. So Antiochus then takes Sidon, 200 BC. He forces, we know from history, fulfillment. He forces General Scopus to surrender where the Jordan begins. They, they try to rescue three times, but it fails. 
Verse 16, the invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land. That's Israel, Palestine. And he will have the power to destroy it. Antiochus solidifies his hold on Palestine. He won't lose it again to Egypt. He's got it now. The tug of war is over. He's got a hold of it. He's not going to give it up. The, the pit bull has a piece of meat. <clears throat> he won't lose it again. He won't lose it again until... Rome takes it from him. Rome takes it from him. Now, remember, the Jews welcomed him as a liberator, but he's going to be anything but a liberator. Wait until you see what his son does to them next time. Next time we, next section of scripture, next sermon. Verse 17. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not sick. Seed. Verse 17, Rome is rising. The Roman Empire, the most terrible of all, is rising. They threaten Antiochus. So he makes peace with Egypt, the south. He makes peace with them. He hopes that together they can stand against Rome, which isn't going to happen. He sends his daughter Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra, a different one. He sends his daughter Cleopatra to marry Ptolemy V. Ptolemy is only five, uh, seven years old. He's seven years old. And he hoped that his daughter would dominate this kid. Although this kid, seven years old, is in the yuck stage. He doesn't, doesn't like girls yet. But he, he, but she thinks he's kind of cute. And he finally grows up and hits puberty and realizes he has a beautiful princess on his hands, falls in love with her. They fall in love. She already loves him <clears throat> and takes his side against her father. Oh, that did not sit well with dad. Then he will turn, verse 18, he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. He's ticked off. He attacks Greece. He's going to become another Alexander the Great, going to morph the kingdoms all together. But the bronze goat is finished, as we already know. Uh, they're finished in prophetic history. Rome blocks him. General Scipio repulses him. Verse 19, now he's really mad. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but he will stumble and fall to be seen no more. He's really mad. He goes home to Antioch. One year later, 187 BC, he tries to plunder the temple of Jupiter, uh, but the mob riots and kills him. Kills him. Verse 20, his successor will send out tax collectors to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. His oldest son, Seleucus IV, takes over. Rome demands a heavy tribute, so he, he taxes everybody, including the Jews, in a very heavy hand. Hello, hello, I got it. Heliodorus, uh, ten times fast. His Jewish tax collector is upset and poisons him. Notice he was killed not in anger, uh, not in battle, but uh, not in the mob violence like his father. Not in battle. He was poisoned. He was poisoned. His son Antiochus Epiphanes takes over, and and we're going to see this next time, the next sermon about Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's really mad at the Jews because you killed my dad. And we're going to see what happens next. Antiochus Epiphanes is type of the Antichrist as we've already seen. We're going to see more details about that. Now, keep in mind, I'm laying it all out there, this wild history. Keep in mind this whole time, the Jews in Palestine are caught in the middle. They're like a ping pong ball. Boom, boom, back, 
back, back, forth, back and forth, ping pong ball. Just like today, being squeezed by the world powers. Just like today. Remember when the first Gulf War happened and scuds were being shot into Israel and they were told by the U.S., don't respond. The U.S. and allies, don't respond. Don't fight back. We're going to take care of this. Don't respond. And they were caught in the middle. If they responded, we would be mad. If they didn't, well, they're letting scuds be flying in, right? And, and then, and then Josephus talks about this whole time what's been going on. I read a little excerpt from Josephus, but Josephus said every time one of these armies passed through north or south passed through, it was bad news. If they had just won, they would whoop it up and take slaves and take the girls as their sex slaves and they would ransack the city and rape people and, and they let the Indian, they would give the elephants alcohol and get them drunk and let them run wild. They would let the elephants do this. If they lost, then they were mad and they took that out on the Jews. The losing, they took it on the Jews. They butchered the women and children. They burned. They destroyed. They marched the elephants over the people and squashed them. Uh, where's, where, I fed you the hay, remember? They, 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 whoever won oppressed them, took taxes and took slaves and took food and took whatever they want. This went on for hundreds of years. Daniel was given this vision. That's why he was wiped out for it. He saw this in living color. He saw this. He could see it all happening. And that's why he was wiped out and just wiped out by this vision. But this whole thing was, this whole episode was preparing these stubborn people. Uh, they're preparing them for the first coming of the Messiah. That's why there was this incredible messianic expectation at the time of Christ's birth. Incredible messianic expectation. Why most were looking for a military deliverer. They wanted someone to win the war for them, right? Now, we know what happened. The Messiah was born not in the palace, but in a manger. And he wasn't born to conquer Rome, but he was born to conquer sin and Satan and the world. He's going to conquer Rome at the second coming. He's going to conquer the revived Roman Empire at the second coming. He didn't, he didn't come to end all suffering immediately but to suffer himself. And he will end all suffering at the second coming. Wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's going he's gonna to end all suffering there. But this is what's amazing and why I did the details and explained what happened historically. It's amazing that God can predict history in such minute detail. Why not? <laughs> he, can, he, he knows it all ahead of time. There's no history to God. There's no time. He's outside of time. He knows it all. He can disclose whatever he's want. God was not shocked by everything that was going to happen. He sent the angels to tell Daniel what was going to happen. And, so, and, and the Jews, as an extent, uh, extension of that, what was going to happen. God is not shocked what was, was not shocked by what was going to happen. He's not shocked today by what is happening in the Middle East or Israel today. He's not shocked by what is happening in the USA today. He knew about the coronavirus long, long time ago and all that it spawned. He knew all about what was going to be happening to us today. He knows who's going to be the next president. He has a plan. He has a purpose. We might not like his plan and purpose. It might involve persecution. I know. It's going to involve persecution at some point in the USA today. You will be hated by all nations because of me. We know it's going to come. We may not like it, but he has a plan and a purpose. We've been praying for revival forever with the church. <clears throat> There's not been a revival. The church is getting worse by the, the day. It's getting becoming more worldly and more buying the world's lies and, and buying all the garbage and the, 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 the philosophies and the movements of the world and not looking at the Bible, but looking at 
the world's lies. It's crazy what the what the church has become. It, it's it's just really sad and scary. And there's only one way to figure out who's really Christian: persecution. There's only one way to refine the church: persecution. That's why it's happening all over the world. It's going to happen here. Sorry, uh, but I, I don't like it. We're all hoping for the rapture quick, right? But but we'll get into that in the Revelation. But. <clears throat> No matter what, we're going to face persecution. It's the only way to separate the weeds from the wheat is, is that once the persecution hits, we're going to see all the fake. Look at all the fake Christian celebrities now that are being exposed over issues, spiritual issues, and they're taking the wrong side. And they've been these famous celebrities speaking big crowds with all this money, and now all of a sudden, turns out they believe X, Y, and Z is okay. You know, And everybody's like, whoa! Well, they've been exposed. And that's what this refining time is going to do. It's going to expose the fakes. The fakes. It's going to expose them. And there's a lot of them. I would say the majority of, of celebrity, uh, well-known Christians are fakes. You know why I know that? Because they've already been exposed over so many key spiritual issues. Fakes. Fakes, fakes, fakes. So, the, God is going to, God knows He has a plan. We may not like it, but He's going to refine his church. He's going to separate the wheat from the weeds. He's going to do that. God knows what's going on. He has a plan for our life. The same is true of our lives. He has a plan for our lives. God already knows the beginning from the end. He knows it already. He knows it. He, he knows what's going on. God is in control. He's in control. Very important to realize that he is in control of our lives and of our churches. God knows He's in control. A lot of what, what's going to happen with the churches in America? A lot, I, a lot of friends. We don't know what's what's it going to look like when we get past this whole thing. If we get past it, what are churches going to look like? I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of underground churches. All right, and what's but what's this going to look like? It's God has a plan. I know for our church, New Hope Community Church, it's not just a twist of fate that the church started or that it survived or that you're part of, those who are part of it or whatever church you're part of, God has a plan. It's no accident. If you're listening to this and you're not a Christian yet, it's no accident that you're listening to this sermon today. God, you are going to look back in eternity at this moment and realize that you heard the gospel at this time, because I always share the gospel. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Every one of us must make a decision. Will we put our faith in Jesus Christ? God gave his son Jesus, his one and only son, only one and only son, to die on a cross for our sin in our place to take our punishment. And we have a decision to make. Will we believe in him? Will we put our faith in him? That word means to put your faith in complete trust and complete dependence. Will we put our faith in his death on that cross in our place for our forgiveness so that we can have eternal life with God someday. Have you done that? Will you do that now? You will look back on this very moment, someday in eternity, gazillions of years ahead, but we won't even count by years by then. There's no such thing. Forever in eternity, you will look back at this moment and did you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Did you give your life to him? Every one of us has to make that choice. Every one of us, God has a plan. He's calling us. He's working his plan. I, I think of, and I'll end with this story and then we'll pray. I think of uh, Paul and Beth McBride, who are good friends of, 
of ours and also a key people in our church. And I'll, I'll never forget her father, George, George Lowen. And uh, I'll never forget talking to him. He died of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease years ago. But I remember him telling stories and Paul and telling stories. And, and what happened? He was in World War II. He was in, a, he was, uh, in the B-17, the bomber. And he was a... I think it was a tail gunner. He was in the. He was in the. I believe the. Um, where was he in? Well, anyway, he was in the. He was on, on the. I can't remember exactly his position. Oh, he was in. He was in charge of getting the bombs out the door. That's what he was in charge of. And he, uh, whatever that position is, Paul. If Paul was there. He could tell the whole thing intricately detailed. But I just remember him telling the story. His job was to get the bombs out the door, and <clears throat> that was one of his jobs. And. One time he was scheduled, he went out on many bombing missions, but one time he was scheduled to go out and he got appendicitis. And so he couldn't go. He had to go get his appendix out and his crew went out and they were shot down and killed. Every one of them were killed. The next time, he went on lots more missions, <clears throat> but another time his father died here in the U.S. and he flew back for his father's funeral. And while he was back here for his father's funeral, his plane was shot down and everybody was killed again. Twice. Twice he should have died. Now, he wasn't a Christian yet. He didn't have a faith. He wasn't a Christian. If he had been shot down, he'd be living in hell to this day, you know, eternity in hell. But he, but he survived both those times. Another time, the bombs wouldn't go out the door and uh, there, it was stuck. The mechanism was stuck. They couldn't get the door open for the bombs to go out. And he went there with his, he had a hammer and he started, if I remember right, he was hitting on the, the latch with the hammer and it opened. <clears throat> the bombs went flying out. And so did he. <laughs> he went flying up too. It, it caught him off guard how, how it opened so quickly. And, but they had a safety rope tied to him. That was part of the thing they did with his position. They had a safety rope. So here he is flying out. The bombs are flying down. And here he is. And he's hitting the bottom of the plane. You know, flying. And he's like, flying, bang, 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 hitting the plane. And, and he's like just hanging. He's got this rope. That's all that's keeping him from following the bombs down, right? And somehow he got back. I can't remember if he pulled or the guys got in. And they pulled on the rope. Somehow he got back in because that rope was the thing that kept him in. What if, what if that rope had broke? What if... He didn't miss those two flights. He wasn't a Christian yet. There'd be no more George Lowen in heaven. There'd be no Betty, his wife. You know, she she would have married someone else. There'd be no McBrides. You know, there maybe be no New Hope Community Church. They've had a lot of impact on our church. Uh, <clears throat> every one of us is in that place. Maybe not as dramatic, but we're in that place. We are. Our lives are hanging by a thread. By a thread. That could break. Any, we could fall any time. We could break any time. Will you grab a hold of that rope, Jesus Christ, and hang on and get into that plane called Jesus? Will you put your faith in Him? Let's pray. How is God speaking to you? How is He speaking to you? Maybe you're listening to this, watching this, and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe your life is teetering on the edge of eternity. Will you take hold of that rope? Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Will you give your life to Him right now? It doesn't take a magical prayer. It doesn't take a special rite or ritual. There's nothing you can do to earn this. All you can do is put your faith in what Jesus has done. 
his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, for us, the simple prayer of faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God, please forgive my sin. Please forgive my sin. I repent. I turn away from that old life. Please forgive my sin. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. His death for me. I put my faith in him. I give my life to him. And while we're praying about that, how is God speaking to us who have already put our faith in Jesus? How is God speaking to us? Are we ready? Are we ready for the refining? Are we trusting God? Are we getting close to Him? Are we separating ourselves from the world? Are we getting our minds transformed and our hearts transformed and our, our families and our children transformed? Not conformed to the world, but being transformed. Maybe we've been conformed in some way to the world and we realize that and we say, God, I want to be ready for, for what's coming. I want to be ready for Jesus when he comes the second time. Father, I pray that each person would be ready, whether they're getting themselves ready spiritually, sanctification, or whether it's salvation, someone putting their faith in Jesus. I pray that we would all be ready for the second coming. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Tell someone so they can encourage you spiritually. Let me know, nhcc at comcast.net. Let someone know because we'll encourage you and help you to grow spiritually and be very, very excited for you. But I uh, want, want to encourage you to take that step that is going to change your eternity, your life here on earth, starting this very second and going out to all of eternity. Okay. See you next time.